The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Reviews, it cost a lot of money and someone had to pay for it. So a wealthy person would typically sponsor an artist or a craftsman or a writer to produce a work like this. So I think it's most likely that Theophilus was a wealthy man who was either a Christian or interested in such things and out of curiosity or perhaps as a service to the church, commissioned and funded this work of history. And this also implies, based on the name, that Luke's gospel was written to a Gentile. That's a non-Jewish audience. And that makes sense as well, based on a lot of the textual clues in the book. As we get further into Luke, it's pretty clear that Luke was meant for people who maybe weren't 100% familiar with Jewish traditions, unlike whereas Matthew was very much written for a Jewish audience with lots of references to the Old Testament and an assumed knowledge of a lot of the things that happened in Israel's history, Luke is written to maybe a layperson. So I'll also note here that Luke is the author of the Acts of the Apostles. That's the book in most Bibles that comes right after the Gospels, which narratively describes the Acts of the Apostles, the Apostles being those who were with Jesus, his disciples, and others who were very close to him who were commissioned to spread the word of Jesus in those earliest days. And so unsurprisingly, the Acts and Luke are similar in many respects. You can see a lot of stylistic similarities and a similar concern with historical realities. Both Luke and Acts contain a lot of phrases like, and then this happened. And it's also kind of appropriate, you could call the Gospel of Luke the Acts of Jesus. Like part one is the Acts of Jesus, and part two is the Acts of the Apostles. It's just the things that these people did. But this eye to historicity isn't just a quirk of Luke's background or interest. He uses his historical strength to firmly set Jesus' life and ministry in reality. The events in Luke have a particular quality of space and time to them. He cares a lot about the order of things and the details about what happened. Luke wants you to know which individuals were present at which events. He often will mention people being present at certain events that are in the other Gospels, but those other Gospels make no mention of the sign of secondary or side characters. But Luke wants you to know, hey, this really happened. These real people were there. He, these real people saw. And he uses his diligence in this historicity, I think, to reinforce the idea very strongly that Jesus is both God and man. We're going to see a lot of evidence as we go through Luke and a lot of repeated touches on the idea that Jesus is really God and he is really man. So Luke will say, you know, Jesus is a man. You see right here, here's an account of how Jesus grew up, just like all of us. He had parents, a normal person. He lived in this place. He worked this type of job. He ate this food. He went on this trip. As we all know, this trip takes so many days. Jesus was a man and he does all the things that normal men do. But Luke also says Jesus was God. And so He's just as historically accurate with Jesus' godhood as he is with Jesus' manhood. Jesus did a miracle, and these are the names of the people who saw it. He was in this place when it happened. You can check my work if you want to, he says. Look at this. On this particular day, during the life of this famous person, Jesus was put to death. But then, three days later, he rose to life again. Here are the names of the women who first saw it. And then these 11 men were next. And then these groups of people, again, Luke is almost saying, go back and check my work. I've done my research. I have a lot of detail, and I wouldn't have put all this extra detail in here if this stuff didn't really happen. So Luke's historical detail demonstrates both Jesus' humanity and his deity with evidence to back it up. And that's exactly what Luke says his gospel is about, that you may have certainty about these things. So that will serve as enough of an introduction to the gospel of Luke. A detailed history of Jesus meant to persuade the reader or reassure the reader that the accounts of Jesus, both as a real human and as God himself, these accounts are reliable and true. So let's get into the text. 
Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 41. Last week's sermon was challenging and heavy, but frankly, this week's is much less so, simply due to the nature of the text. You know, not every part of Scripture is the real hard-hitting stuff. This one, for example, just kind of says some things that happened in the life of Jesus. And that is, of course, by design. God is not merely concerned with the most dramatic and high-stakes parts of our lives. He's deeply concerned with our ordinary days, too. And so to that effect, I'm going to work through this text and simply stop along the way to mark out some points of both theology and application. And since this text is concerned with Jesus' childhood, I have several things to say to our children as well. And this sermon will be a little shorter than usual uh, for those similar reasons. So let me read to you Luke chapter 2 starting in verse 41 and going through the end of chapter 2. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem. That's Jesus' parents. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. But he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we first see in Luke's typical fashion that he is concerned with seemingly ordinary details of Jesus' life. We can imagine a temptation for a secular historian to embellish Jesus' origin story, as it were. Jesus came onto the scene and began his earthly ministry at age 30. He rapidly gained popularity and a following, and then his untimely death came at just age 33. So there would have been claims swirling of Jesus performing miracles, healing the sick, even raising the dead. Some say that the reason he was put to death was for treason against the Roman Empire. Others would say it was a religious hit job. Some people say he never died at all, but that he's just undercover, still alive somewhere and hiding. His followers say that he did die, but then he returned to life. And so it would be very easy, very tempting to conjecture or even outright make up stories about his birth and early life in order to add to the mystique. Maybe Jesus appeared out of thin air. Maybe he was a normal child, but then he had some sort of accident with radiation that gave him superpowers. There are even other false gospels written besides Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, either to deceive or to gain popularity for the author that um, detail stories about uh, the boy Jesus carving wooden animals. After all, Joseph was a carpenter, and he would carve these wooden animals, and they would come to life. Some of these include things like the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Thomas. But Luke has no interest in drumming up a cool backstory for Jesus. And in fact, Luke seems intent that we mostly understand about Jesus' birth and childhood, that Jesus was a fairly normal kid. And I granted normal kids don't usually wander off and sit in the temple and impress the priests and rabbis, but normal kids do grow in wisdom and stature. They do wander off from their parents. They do just get older. 
And so we can't read Luke's mind to know exactly why he included just this one story from Jesus' childhood. But the fact that it doesn't seem all that special or miraculous should tell us something. It's important to Luke that Jesus was, in fact, a man. And like all men, he started out a boy. So let's start working through the text. First, we see that Jesus and his family are on the way to Jerusalem to observe Passover, which is one of the most important religious festivals of the Israelites' calendar. So it was required for all adult men to attend, although due to the logistical difficulty, many undoubtedly did not because they were required to travel to Jerusalem, which in some cases could have been a long journey. It was also typical for boys of Jesus' age to attend. You likely know that today Jewish boys celebrate a bar mitzvah at age 13 wherein they're sort of inducted into manhood. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but the phrase bar mitzvah means son of the commandment, and so at that age, a Jewish boy is expected to begin obeying all the Jewish laws, at least for the, the Orthodox variety. And that's not a biblical command. You won't find that in Scripture, uh, Old Testament or New. It's a, actually a much later tradition. But there is kind of a historical precedent, not a command, not a specific age, but a historical precedent that this is about the age when a boy was started to be expected to act like an adult. So Jesus was either welcome into the ceremony with the other men, or perhaps he was sort of riding along with Joseph so that in the next few years when that time came, he would be ready. But we also observe here that Mary joins Joseph and Jesus as well, although that was not actually required. So we can also deduce from some contextual clues that Mary and Joseph almost certainly had other children by this point, uh, of whom, of course, Jesus was the eldest. We know from elsewhere in Mark, I think it's chapter 6, that Jesus has at least four brothers and a plural number of sisters. So at some point, Mary and Joseph had a minimum of six other children besides Jesus. Uh, and Jesus being 12, they probably didn't wait 12 years to start having more kids. So there's at least some kids tagging along in this journey. The reason I point this out is just to say that this was a significant and challenging undertaking. This is a family with multiple children, the eldest of whom is 12, making a multiple-day journey on foot at their own expense to observe a religious festival. But this clearly wasn't just a religious festival for Mary and Joseph. They obviously cared enough about this ordinance from God to make a great sacrifice to accomplish it. So with that in mind, let me stop here and make my first application. I just want to encourage you, whether or not you have children, but especially those of you with children, to prioritize the things of God, even though it is difficult. I, I have two one-year-olds and a pregnant wife. Everything's difficult. Every single Sunday morning, I have a very legitimate excuse to stay home. There's always something. Everything is so much harder than it needs to be. And I'm not asking you to be at every church function that exists, and I, I don't actually recommend that, but... God commanded Mary and Joseph, or at least Joseph, to attend the Feast of Passover, and so they made it a priority. Likewise, today, God commands his people to regularly gather together for worship, and so we should make it a priority. Let us follow Mary and Joseph's example and make a priority of the things of God. Not only is it obedient, but those around us, our spouses, our children, are watching us. I think it was in 2022 that Christmas fell on a Sunday. We were here just like we always are, worshiping the Lord. And that's an opportunity to teach the watching world, but especially our children, what is and is not a priority to us. Are we adapting the rhythms of our lives to fit God's church, or are we trying to adapt God's church to fit our lives?
Mary and Joseph had to save money to do this. They had to take vacation days, as it were. They had to walk a long distance with their small children. Are we willing to take the same measures to ensure that we obey God's schedule? So let's keep going into verse 43. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. So let me just head off what's probably in your mind so that we can move on and concentrate on other things. How could Mary and Joseph have left a 12-year-old in another city, right? It's like the plot to home alone. Were Mary and Joseph horribly irresponsible parents is kind of the question. So here's the thing. First of all, Jesus was nearly old enough to be considered a man. Kids those days grew up faster, just out of necessity. You can't continue to be a drain on your family resources indefinitely until you're you know, 26 and you get off their health insurance. It didn't work that way. They had to work. There were expectations for even young children to contribute to their family and contribute to society. So they grew up faster. So maybe we could say, like, if this were happening today, Jesus would be, like, 15 or 16. It's, like, a little less crazy than 12. Secondly, this group of travelers was likely quite large. It's expensive and dangerous to travel alone. So a big group of people, all from the same town, would journey to Jerusalem together. So it's going to be, like, a lot of their cousins and aunts and uncles and their friends and their, you know, kids' friends' parents. A whole bunch of people that they kind of generally knew are all traveling together. And so it's, it's perfectly reasonable to think that Jesus, who, again, is old enough to be almost a man, so like today, a 15 or a 16-year-old young man, is just off with his cousins or his friends. No one's concerned when their 15-year-old is gone for 12 hours, especially if you knew that his cousins were right over there. And so if we translate it to our culture, we can much more easily imagine, you know, 15-year-old Jesus just walking with his cousins, Mary and Joseph, maybe Mary thought Joseph knew where he was, and Joseph thought Mary knew where he was. They were not being criminally negligent. But at camp, the first night, when they try to get the whole family to check back in, they realize that something's up. So they rush back to Jerusalem, and funny enough, it takes them three days to find him, which means that Jesus was fending for himself in a foreign city for three days, reinforcing, again, Jesus was nearly a man at this point, so him being missing wasn't an insanely concerning thing like it would be to us. He was doing just fine for three days all by himself. And in verse 46, they find him. After three days, they found Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So this kind of teaching arrangement was probably a fairly normal occurrence in a place like Jerusalem, which is where the temple was. Obviously, religious instruction would have been a big part of the culture and the economy there. And so those with time and interest could have spent their time enjoying, uh, enjoining with the rabbis. And the rabbi is just a word that means teacher, who lived there in Jerusalem and worked the temple. So you can probably imagine a group of inquisitive students of various ages with one or two respected teachers asking questions about the Bible and having theological debates the rabbis will answer this question, or maybe they'll ask a question in return, try to instruct the students. And Jesus is found in the midst of all of this. It's not that he's teaching or rebuking like he would later during his actual ministry, but again, Jesus is, is a boy, a young man at this point. He's simply there learning, probably with many other young men of his same age. The only difference is that his understanding amazes everyone there. Basically, it seems like Jesus is a, a very precocious 12-year-old who is interested in the things of God and has probably caught the eye of a few of the teachers in Jerusalem. So continuing in verse 48, When his parents saw him, they were astonished. 
His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now again, this is kind of surprising to us. It's easy for us to, to you know, turn a judgmental eye towards Mary's response here. Because we know that Jesus, of course, is God. And so why would it be astonishing for Jesus to be at God's house? Now we can't know the minds of anyone present, but you know, it seems like Mary is unsurprisingly kind of frustrated with this whole ordeal, maybe even frustrated with Jesus. She's maybe even accusing Jesus of mistreating his parents. Why have you treated us so, she says. Now we know that Jesus was without sin, but I genuinely think that we should give Mary and Joseph a little bit of slack because I think it would have been easy for them to maybe forget who Jesus was. I mean, Mary and Joseph did receive direct word from messengers of God explaining kind of the situation with Jesus, but just speaking humanly here, I mean, they raised Jesus. Dealing with a four-year-old, any four-year-old, doesn't really strike you as a divine creature. Like, they don't, they don't know anything, they're rowdy, they sort of get into mischief. Jesus just... Jesus was a normal kid. He did all the wacky, silly things that kids do, and his parents loved him the same way. And, you know, it's not a sin to want to sing the same song a thousand times or to play tag in the house. Jesus did all of those things, and his parents saw him doing all of those things. So in many ways, Jesus was just a kid to Mary and Joseph. And so maybe you can empathize with Mary a little bit after three days of running around looking for Jesus, who was supposed to be the least trouble of all of their kids at this point. Maybe we can cut Mary some slack for demanding an explanation. And I would also like to point out here the small but important honor that the Bible consistently grants to Joseph. Joseph, the carpenter, got a tough hand. He had to deal with all those whispers of an early pregnancy. He had to set aside his own plans for a family and put them on hold for Jesus. I'm sure that raising a sinless child was an absolute pleasure, but Joseph nonetheless took on additional responsibility for himself and an extra mouth to feed in a time when that was not as trivial as it is today. Joseph acted in every way as Jesus' father here on earth. And in return, the Bible calls Joseph Jesus' father. Not only through the mouth of Mary, but it frequently will just talk about Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph. Mary is Jesus' parent. Joseph is Jesus' parent. The Bible treats adoption, fostering, blended families with high esteem. It does not differentiate between a father and an adoptive father. God really respects adoption. And this is a good thing for us because when we are saved, God says he adopts us. And because of this pattern of adoption in Scripture, because of this respect for the care for a child that isn't quote-unquote yours, we know that when God adopts us, it doesn't mean that we're sort of God's children or God's children with an asterisk. But when God says that he adopts us, he means that we are his children. The Bible very casually calls Joseph Jesus' father because Joseph is Jesus' father. And likewise, God is our father. Now let's see how Jesus responds. And this is maybe the part that's the best for the children who are with us to hear. So after Jesus' parents find him in the temple, they are upset because they couldn't find him for so long. Now, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Again, we know that he was without sin, but Mary and Joseph are understandably frustrated with him. Now, let's see what Jesus says to them in verse 49. Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, they, that's Mary and Joseph, did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. 
So let me first point out that Jesus, even though he was left all alone, did not get into trouble. And in fact, he spent his free time studying the Bible. But then when his parents find him and get upset, it says that Jesus was submissive to them. That means that Jesus was respectful to them. He didn't argue. Even though he was right, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was Jesus, after all. He still respected and obeyed his parents. Mary and Joseph didn't understand what Jesus was doing, but Jesus didn't argue with them or try to correct them or teach them why they were wrong. He listened to them. God gave Jesus his parents on earth to take care of him and to teach him, and Jesus knew that his parents were given to him for good. So, to the children among us, let's follow Jesus' example. To the adults among us, too, let's follow Jesus' example. Even when your parents are wrong, when my parents are wrong, we should respect them anyway. Another thing that we can see here is that Jesus appears to have an understanding of who he actually is by now. As I said earlier, Jesus is near the age where culturally he would be expected to act like a man. So it makes sense that he would be coming to terms with the idea that he was the son of God. Again, I'm not sure that a two-year-old or a four-year-old or even an eight-year-old has the mental capacity to kind of wrap his mind around that. But, but at the age 12, it seems that Jesus is starting to get the idea. And importantly for us, we also see that even at age 12, Jesus was capable of doing the Lord's work. When he says, I was at my father's house, that phrase could also be translated, I was going about my father's business. Jesus was going about his father's business, and here meaning God. So, again, to the children with us, you do not need to be an adult to go about God's business. You can do what Jesus did when he was a child. You can teach, you can learn from those who study the Bible. You can worship God in church. You can tell others about God, and you can do God's business. Likewise, parents, remember that your children can be about God's business. You can encourage them to do so, and at a certain age, inspect them, to, expect them to do so. Now, this is not referring to, as it is sometimes called, an age of accountability, wherein a child suddenly moves from having no responsibility for sin to having responsibility for it. There's a lot of people try to kind of figure out, like, well, exactly when is it, can a child, you know, are, if below a certain age, they don't have to, like, technically become a Christian to be saved, but then after a certain age, they're responsible for it. There's no biblical precedent for that idea. And we know from the Bible, in fact, the opposite is true. Sin is sin, no matter who commits it. We're born with a sin nature. And so nothing about the sin of a child is any less sinful than that of an adult. God clearly even teaches us that children can be saved. And so, of course, if they can be saved, they presumably need to be. Um, Jesus teaches us to let the children come to him. And when John the Baptist is come upon by the Holy Spirit in the womb, we know that he is saved even at that moment. God also teaches us that children are capable of sin as when he commands children, and adults too, but children in particular, to honor their father and mother. So there's not a certain age, like 12 or 13 or whatever, where you should suddenly start holding your children to account. What I am saying is that we should treat our children like they are capable for working for the Lord. We can instruct them how to worship. We can teach them to begin the disciplines of prayer and the regular study of Scripture. We can encourage them to evangelize their friends. Let them ask questions of you about spiritual things. Let them ask questions of us, the pastors here, about spiritual things. When it's appropriate and to the level which is appropriate, let them join in on maybe small group or at the men's and women's Bible studies. We are deputized by God as parents to raise not just children, but to raise adults. We're trying to take the children which God has given us and make them into men and women of God. 
Jesus was on his way to becoming this type of man of God, which is why he was involved in these ceremonies in the first place. So let us remember that we are not just helping them grow physically larger. They do that on their own, but rather we are trying to raise them to be men and women of God. And the of God part doesn't just get tacked on at the end. It comes from the very beginning. So let them serve God now. And let's read these last two verses in the chapter. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So before we close today, I want to make one final point, a more theological point that we can observe in summary. Much of Luke's gospel teaches us this, as I said before, and it's even clear here in this early chapter that Jesus is man and God. Over just a few sentences, Jesus grows from a baby to a young man of 12, and then a few more sentences, we find him as an adult, just as all children do. Trips, his parents lose track of him. He lives seemingly a fairly normal life, except that there is another side to this Jesus. We see it in the temple. A boy of 12 is perhaps not normally attracted to the temple, but not only that, he's the marvel of all who meet him. A boy who patiently explains to his parents that he would be found in his father's house. A boy who understands, at least in part, his own godhood. So you'll hear about this again and again in Luke, but let me just lay some groundwork for now. Not only is it true that Jesus is both man and God, it is in fact necessary for our salvation that both are true. So the, the Heidelberg Catechism says this so well in summary that I won't try to do better. We will surely unpack these truths in much more depth as we continue in Luke and find more evidence for them, and it's present in all of the rest of Scripture as well. But let me just read to you these two questions from the Heidelberg Catechism in summary. Why must Jesus be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. And the next question, why must Jesus also be true God? And the answer, so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. So even as a child, it was clear that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And we praise God for that, for only through both is our salvation one. We will consider these things much more in the weeks and months to come. But for today, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this account of Jesus, of the life of your Son. Thank you for the evidence. Thank you for the reliability. Thank you for Luke and his care and caution, his inquisitiveness and his diligence. Thank you for preserving this work all the way up until today so that we might see the orderly account of these real historical events that happened that we might have assurance in our faith. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was a baby and a boy and a man. Thank you for making him so understandable and identifiable to us, having all these experiences which are common to us. God, thank you that Jesus is also God. Thank you that he is divine, able to live his life without sin, and able to bear the weight for all of ours. Father, thank you for Jesus. May we be like him as he was like us, 
and that we'd be like him in a way that we could never be without him, in that we would be like you. In Jesus' name, All sermons amen. are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.